Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Friday, September 28, 2007, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Today, we will be discussing an article published in the September 2007 issue of Critical Care Medicine. The title of this article is Management Strategies for Patients with Pulmonary Hypertension in the Intensive Care Unit. This is a continuing medical education article, and the reference is Critical Care Medicine 2007, um, volume 35, page 2037 to 2050, and we have an opportunity to speak with the lead author, Dr. Roham T. Zamanian, M.D., and he is on faculty at Stanford University. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Stanford, and he is also on faculty at the Vera Moulton Wall Center for Pulmonary Vascular Disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Zamanian, for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me on the program. And uh, as you and I were discussing before, um, you know, because our listeners are from centers large and small all over the country, maybe if you could take a, a couple of minutes and really paint a picture of what your particular uh, center is like uh, in terms of treating uh, subspecialty issues like uh, pulmonary hypertension, and then we'll get into some talking points. For sure. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, the Vera Moulton Wall Center for Pulmonary uh, Vascular Disease is uh, a center that's unique in allowing for uh, the appropriate workup diagnosis and uh, cutting-edge therapies for pulmonary arterial hypertension um, and pulmonary hypertension of a variety of different uh, etiologies. Uh, we have a patient population of approximately uh, 500 patients, and we're active in not only the therapy of those patients, but also providing a super fellowship in education of patient, uh, fellows for pulmonary vascular disease, as well as uh, outreach to the community and also uh, being a uh, cutting-edge center for uh, therapeutic modalities. And you must be involved, obviously, uh, as a center in terms of trying to find new and better therapies for the disease as well? Um, Absolutely. We uh, have the routine uh, studies that are uh, cutting-edge and participate in some of those uh, larger clinical trials. But we're also very much focused in uh, disease etiology and research at uh, the basic and bench level as well. Um, we, our uh, current interest is in the field of biomarkers within the disease, as well as uh, the idea of recognizing um, insulin resistance as a potential uh, corroborator or disease modifier in patients with pulmonary hypertension. 
In terms of getting right into the interview, I thought I'd like to put together our first two talking points and then let you really talk for a few minutes. First, in terms of describing, just defining pulmonary hypertension, the numbers, and then if, if for those who at home are looking at the article, uh, your table one talks about the revised clinical classification of pulmonary hypertension and quotes Venice 2003 with five major subcategories. And if you could take a few minutes, I am absolutely certain that there are many people out there who are listening to this who would love to hear your, your personal thoughts on that. Absolutely. Uh, pulmonary hypertension is defined uh, hemodynamically as a state where the systolic pulmonary artery pressures are greater than 35 millimeters of mercury, or really the mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 25 millimeters of mercury at rest. There are patients who, with exertion, develop mean pulmonary artery pressures of greater than 30 millimeters of mercury. However, that subset is probably um, less um, uh, frequent and, and probably more uh, limited um, in, in that capacity. Uh, it is worth pointing out that, again, this is a hemodynamic uh, disease in, in a sense and defined hemodynamically as best as we can reflect these hemodynamics, uh, reflect the real pathobiology that is vasoconstriction and pro proliferation in the pulmonary vascular bed that's going on. Table one is, um, and the Venice classification of pulmonary hypertension that was revised in 2003 is really a starting point for us to um, communicate as physicians and better understand the points that are salient in the conversation. Um, the Venice classification outlines five categories of pulmonary hypertension, and one of the number one most important points that I like to highlight is that pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is the group one, is distinguished by those patients which we think have the real pathobiology of pulmonary vascular disease that we all talk about, which is proliferation and vasoconstriction. So. If you look at the data that are across trials for treatment of pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension is really what people focus on, and this is previously known as primary pulmonary hypertension. Groups two through five are the groups that have associated conditions, such as interstitial lung disease, uh, pulmonary venous hypertension from mitral valve disease or left ventricular disease, or patients with thromboembolic disease, that really may share some of these characteristics from a pathology and pathobiology perspective, but are not really the focus of all the data that's out there for pulmonary arterial hypertension. So I think understanding that table is very important and recognizing the notion that we talk about pulmonary arterial hypertension and pulmonary hypertension in general um, and sort of how this table classifies it for you. One of the great examples, I think, of this classification is that you and I can talk about a patient who has, quote, pulmonary hypertension from congenital heart disease or pulmonary hypertension from interstitial lung disease. Those two patients both have secondary pulmonary hypertension, but what this table really classifies and clearly documents is that Congenital heart disease-associated pulmonary hypertension is real pulmonary arterial hypertension, whereas those patients with interstitial lung disease or other secondary causes uh, may or may not share the same characteristics of patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, 
and then a couple questions just along those lines. So, so for example, in this uh, table one, number one, it says pulmonary arterial hypertension, but they have like one dot for pulmonary veno-occlusive disease, um, and that's different, and that's in a completely different category from people uh, that have pulmonary hypertension due to chronic thrombotic or embolic disease. Can you talk about that for a couple minutes? Yes, absolutely. That's actually one of the, the very interesting points. Pulmonary veno-occlusive diseases in, in general and pulmonary capillary hemangiomatosis as well uh, behave, um, behave a little oddly, shall we say. Uh, those are um, characterized, as you pointed out, there are veno-occlusive diseases, so they're beyond, they're post-capillary in nature, uh, but they end up um, actually uh, responding to prostacycline and have some degree of capacity to respond to therapies for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Now, the other uh, question that you bring up is thromboembolic disease, and the nature of thromboembolic disease obviously is precapillary per se, um, though uh, the pathobiology that um, all thromboembolic patients um, may have may not be completely the same as those patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. What makes it a little bit more confusing now is now that there is a lot of focus in pulmonary arterial hypertension, that World Health Group 1 that you see in the table, more and more data is being generated about what to do about more common diseases. As you mentioned before we uh, started talking about COPD or interstitial lung disease and or thromboembolic disease. And so there's going to be a lot of data coming out and focus on more prevalent diseases like COPD and pulmonary hypertension and trying the same paradigm of therapies within those groups, even though they don't necessarily share the same pathobiology as patients with PAH do. And uh, again, just to ask the expert, I, I read in some papers where there was this term CTEF, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Is that yes. still a term? That's correct. Uh, chronic thromboembolic hypertension uh, is, is a term, and it categorizes the group four that you see in the table there. As uh, pointed out there, it could be due to clot or tumor emboli, um, or it, can be, um, it could also be um, proximal or distal, which is also a workup that also needs to be evaluated. The reason I mentioned that is proximal disease uh, can be managed um, or approached surgically whereas uh, distal disease in the very small arteriolar bed uh, may not be, and as a matter of fact, is not surgical. In terms of the, the next uh, step in the interview, I thought before we started talking about more clinical things that uh, having somebody like you take a couple of minutes and just uh, share your perspective on sort of the basic fundamental mechanisms of the cause, sort of like your figure one uh, here of pulmonary hypertension, that, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the the basic and approach to molecular and mechanisms in pulmonary arterial hypertension is comes with the disclosure that uh, some of these pathways may or may not um, be relevant in the pulmonary hypertension of other causes. But um, endothelin one, for example, is a compound that is uh, touted as the most active vasoconstrictive agent. It was initially studied in heart failure, and the results of therapies for endothelin one um, blockers or antagonists 
uh, were not um, great in heart failure in general. So we found it to be interesting in pulmonary hypertension. Endothelin 1, uh, by its receptors, endothelin A and endothelin B, in both the endothelium and the smooth muscle uh, cells in the pulmonary arteries, uh, acts as a proliferative and a vasoconstrictive signal. Uh, the smooth muscle cells uh, respond by proliferating, invading the uh, lumen, and constricting, constricting the vessel in general. Uh, prostaglandin and the arachidonic pathway is very important in that its sense and uh, approach for therapy for that was very well recognized in the early uh, 1980s and 1990s. The therapies came out, such as epoprostanol. Uh, it is known that in patients with idiopathic pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary arterial hypertension of other causes now that um, prostacycline and prostaglandins are uh, less produced. So exogenous prostacyclines can be useful in increasing the cyclic AMP uh, pathway and leading to, leading to vasodilatation and apoptosis. Nitric oxide uh, pathway is a third arm uh, to the mechanism here, and it is recognized in uh, pulmonary vascular disease that, again, cyclic GMP, which is a vasodilator and an apoptotic uh, signal, um, is underproduced uh, in patients. Um, and thus, by providing inhaled nitric oxide or phosphodiesterases, which reduce the breakdown of cyclic GMP, it's able, we are able to uh, shift the paradigm back to that of a vasodilatation and apoptosis. But to make it really clear, um, in uh, uh, this disease and in pulmonary hypertension in general, we're leading, we're, we're, the disease is a proliferative and vasoconstrictive process, and the therapies and the attempts at therapies and attempts at modulating pathways involved are to lead it back to a vasodilated and more of an apoptotic pathway. Before we get to the uh, part of the interview that I'm sure most of the intensivists listening are interested in, which is your thoughts on various therapeutic modalities, uh, modalities why don't we take a second, and I'm just going to read this sentence under the section Diagnostic Tools in the ICU, which I thought was extremely well done, and I'd love to hear your thoughts for a couple of minutes. Physical lab... I'm, on, I'm sorry, I'm on page 2040 of your paper in the first paragraph under Diagnostic Tools in the ICU. Physical, laboratory, and radiologic examinations can help distinguish among three main causes of pulmonary hypertension in the ICU. Pre-existing pulmonary vascular disease, acute or chronic cardiovascular disease, and acute or chronic pulmonary disease. And so, I, I, a, I like that from a teaching perspective in terms of helping to make sure medical students and residents understand how to sort of look at the different categories of pulmonary hypertension, uh, similar to the discussion that you and I just had, but in addition, how you can use uh, diagnostic modalities in the ICU to help figure this out. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, staying within the same paradigm that you bring up, uh, pre-existing patients with pre-existing pulmonary vascular disease um, are patients who really uh, present um, into the office or, in this case, into the ICU with a uh, chronically, um, if you will, trained right ventricle. Uh, those patients will present with uh, dysfunctional right ventricle, but also a hypertrophied right ventricle, and, and uh, one that is is, um, has been for a while anyways, uh, generating um, higher pressures and um, hopefully uh, at the point of presentation not failing, although it can. 
Patients with acute or chronic cardiovascular diseases really are those patients, in my mind, that have pulmonary venous hypertension. We're really talking about those patients who have a coronary artery disease, a patient who presents with um, a myocardial infarction, and as a result of an LV that is now dysfunctional, has high PA pressures as well. And then patients with chronic or acute pulmonary diseases are the caveat of patients who present with such as interstitial lung disease or COPD. One of the very first approaches, obviously, as we do in the ICU and, and as intensivists, is examination of the patient. And some of the salient points I think are very interesting to bring up. One is that a patient with pulmonary vascular disease, real pulmonary arterial hypertension, rarely presents with crackles. And it's a challenge to really identify fluid status in these patients, though on the examination, really the finding of uh, crackles on lung examination or, or abnormal lung examination in any sense should really take that um, uh, patient out of the characteristic or the, um, the pure pulmonary vascular disease uh, patient uh, population in, in the thinking of that patient. Uh, crackles on examination and or rouse or ronchi are not a routine presentation of someone with long-standing pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, beyond examination, obviously, um, are signs and uh, symptoms of um, laboratory and uh, echocardiographic modalities. Um, so other than the physical exam, obviously there are laboratory and other ancillary tests, and maybe if you could take a few moments and share your perspective on the value of these tests as a whole, or perhaps individual tests, that would be great. Uh, absolutely. So I think that um, the approach from a laboratory uh, perspective is that patients who present with uh, right heart failure and pulmonary hypertension uh, really do present with signs and uh, symptoms in the laboratory, such as an elevated cardiac enzymes, troponin I, for example. An elevated BNP uh, is continuing to be validated in, in pulmonary hypertension. And as a matter of fact, some of the earlier studies have linked BNP to the degree of pulmonary vascular resistance that patients with pulmonary hypertension have. Now, the limitation with BNP, obviously, in the setting of the ICU is that if you have someone who comes in with left ventricular dysfunction or inflammatory processes, the BNP may be uh, apparently elevated as well. Then, from an uh, electrocardiographic perspective, uh, right heart strain and right heart uh, hypertrophy, right ventricular hypertrophy can be helpful in diagnosing patients which, who may have pulmonary hypertension. Their signs are of that of, again, right ventricular hypertrophy or right ventricular enlargement with strain patterns. But really, the main um, uh, paradigm that comes down to from a practice perspective is the utility of echocardiography in the setting of pulmonary hypertension in the ICU. Echocardiography is, uh, though limited if it's transthoracic and can be done transesophageal, has some real big value in the intensive care unit. One, it's a non-invasive study to begin with. Uh, secondarily, uh, right ventricular function can be assessed. The degree of right ventricular 
dysfunction, if you will, and or the presence of pericardial effusion are poor markers for patients with pulmonary hypertension, uh, for sure. And also echocardiography can identify patients with left ventricular dysfunction uh, who may have a cause of pulmonary hypertension that is, again, cardiovascular per se or left ventricular pulmonary venous in nature, and that it should be the approach that therapeutic uh, modalities should take. Um, there are newer uh, parameters on echocardiography that are being validated in pulmonary hypertension, and they include the tricuspid annular plane excursion, TAPSI, and also tissue Doppler. Though those are very um, early in, in their evaluation. And uh, finally... Oh, oh I was just going to ask you, because uh, a couple of times we've been called by our cardiologists that patients do have the McConnell sign, and I saw you mention that in your, in your paper. Uh, I was just going to read how you quote it exactly yeah. with severe hypokinesia of the right ventricular mid-free wall with normal contraction of the apical segment. Did, was there anything else to say about that? It, it does come up. We've had our cardiologists call us with that. Um, absolutely. I think that's a, a very, good, uh, very good description of it, and the McConnell sign is helpful. The other thing is also helpful is as far as determining the acuity of uh, the pulmonary hypertension. I'm always um, impressed by the degree of right ventricular hypertrophy that patients with chronic pulmonary vascular disease or uh, chronic pulmonary hypertension present with um, into the ICU, whereas uh, as you and I have probably seen, patients with submassive or massive pulmonary emboli who present don't necessarily have the ventricular remodeling or hypertrophy that goes along with that. So that's actually one of another uh, things that I focus on in, in evaluation of the a patient with pulmonary hypertension using echocardiography. I would like to take a moment and uh, do uh, put an asterisk uh, for, for the listeners on the idea of determining the degree of pulmonary hypertension by right ventricular systolic pressure um, that is determined by the degree of tricuspid regurgitation jet. Um, that measurement can be um, at best faulty in certain examples, certainly in patients with COPD. Uh, it, there has been early studies that show that the RVSP measurements don't really correlate with the severity of pulmonary hypertension that exists. So in general, the way I approach it is if an RVSP that is found less than 55 millimeters of mercury, that person can have anywhere between 35 to 75 millimeters of mercury, their pulmonary uh, systolic uh, pressures. If uh, one sees an RVSP that's estimated beyond 130 millimeters of mercury, is also the degree of that is also um, very difficult to uh, take into uh, perspective. So one word of caution is at the end of the day to look at the whole echo instead of just looking at the RVSP as a marker of the severity of pulmonary hypertension. All right, so just to recap, um, before we get into your discussion of therapy is, number one, try and categorize it in terms of either is it pulmonary arterial hypertension, is this something that has to do with lung disease or with left heart disease or uh, pulmonary hypertension from thrombotic disease, and then secondarily examine the patient and then focus in on synthesizing and putting together the data from other tests such as biomarkers, such as troponins, BNP, echocardiography being incredibly important, and uh, electrocardiography to try and get a sense of whether this is more of an acute or chronic situation and how severe the disease is. How's that? 
That's that's absolutely right. And then the next step, and this is where it gets tricky, is that these patients who come in with some degree of pulmonary hypertension, the poor right ventricle, may make these patients less able to tolerate a hemodynamic hit of something like sepsis, where they may be more short of breath than a patient who doesn't have it, or most importantly, as I teach the residents, the patient may be in shock. This patient can no longer get blood appropriately from the right side to the left and can't do what the body needs them to do in a shock state. And so maybe, as this can often get very complex and and can often be very difficult, spend a few moments talking about the major categories of therapeutic interventions and when to use the various uh, types of agents. Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, you've done a great job of, of um, uh, trimming it down to, to that perspective. It's very important to recognize uh, the approach of those patients. In the ICU, I think the patients who present with pulmonary hypertension, uh, as you've mentioned, um, come in not only for exacerbation of their pulmonary vascular disease or pulmonary hypertension per se and right heart failure, but uh, they're patients who come in with um, sepsis, uh, come in with uh, trauma, and we've recently admitted a patient with a major uh, traumatic event and has pulmonary hypertension as well. And so in, in the bigger picture of, of um, the disease and, and modalities of therapy, um, I sort of break them down into vasopressors and inotropes in the intensive care unit and pulmonary vasodilators per se. Now, specifically in each of those categories, uh, we can talk about specific therapies that are out there and um, the data behind each of those therapies, but as has been also pointed out in the editorial to this paper, there is a general lack of um, knowledge and, and, and a more of an opinion-driven uh, practice paradigm uh, with, with the setting uh, of vasopressors, uh, specifically in the intensive care unit uh, with patients with pulmonary hypertension. So um, most of the data that we've accumulated in this article goes to between animal and human data, but I think that the conclusions we make out of it are very relevant. So, Dr. Zamanian, and I know that this could be, we could have a four-day podcast on this, but just in a few minutes, just to share, if you were consulted on by another intensivist to say, we have a patient in shock, and we're having a lot of problems with pulmonary hypertension, what would be some examples of actual agents you would use? What order would you use them? And what be, what would be some targets that you would recommend to the practicing intensivist? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, actually what is helpful is uh, the figure three that we have in, in the article goes to attempting to do that. Um, you, you know, the patients who are in the intensive care unit, once you've determined if they have pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary hypertension, that is sort of a critical uh, break point where you can apply therapies. Um, overall, the management of right ventricular failure in the intensive care unit is the most important. And really, fluid management becomes very difficult. And I would say as as are other debates about goal, um, uh, goals of uh, management and therapies, uh, using CVP as, a, as an attempt to follow a patient in fluid status-wise in RV failure is important. Now, as far as the therapeutic agents of choice, I think that um, most uh, importantly in my experience is, is the use of dobutamine and um, addition of dopamine to it to, in, in general, keep mean arterial pressures above 60 millimeters of mercury at the same time as being very cautious of the tachyarrhythmogenic uh, uh, nature of these two compounds.
pounds. We use dobutamine at very low doses, um, and one to two per se. Uh, and the addition of dopamine is only in cases where we think that we can uh, support the systemic vascular resistance uh, uh, detriment that dobutamine may have in patients who already have uh, some degree of hypotension. I have had more recent experience with use of um, epinephrine in the setting of a patient who is septic in the ICU and has pulmonary hypertension. Though I gotta say, this is the realm where you begin to pick at pulmonary vasodilators or agents that don't drop systemic vascular resistance. For example, the use of inhaled nitric oxide, and there is going to be data coming out, the use of inhaled milrinone in those settings of um, sepsis and, and pulmonary hypertension in, in where you're limited with blood pressure. Um, I would really say that uh, considering critical illness of the nature in respiratory failure and, and sepsis and hemorrhage, I think is, as we pointed out, is important. The um, optimization of PEEP and uh, mixed venous saturations in both sepsis and uh, respiratory failure is important. And at the end of the day, um, hypercapnia and acidosis is a big detriment to these patients who have uh, elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. So that's sort of in a nutshell where I would approach it. There is going to be more data coming out and already in a setting of cardio um, uh, surgical uh, patients, cardiothoracic patients, the use of sildenafil um, is being recognized as well. One word of caution, I think there has been some data and some discussion regarding the use of recombinant B-type natriuretic peptide or niceratide in the setting of pulmonary hypertension and really the utility of that agent in, except for the cases of pulmonary venous hypertension is very limited in patients with pulmonary hypertension in my experience. Could you take a couple of minutes and answer two other questions? Um, the role. So let's talk about milrinone for a second. Does uh, do you recommend that for patients with pulmonary hypertension and other forms of shock? So if I have a patient that came in long-standing COPD, bad right-sided failure, uh, and we're just really having trouble getting things to from the right to the left, does milrinone have any real role in that from your perspective or personal experience? Yes, I think, you know, milrinone being a selective phosphodiesterase um, uh, 3 inhibitor um, has a role in, in sort of a vasodilatory uh, capacity. Uh, though I, I got to say that the times that I've stayed away from using milrinone are the times where I'm uh, cautious about the potential long-acting effects of milrinone, as you can imagine, uh, several hours in time. I typically choose um, dobutamine uh, in those cases over uh, milrinone, though um, there have been times where um, I have been limited by tachycardias, um, and uh, uh, tachycardias are very detrimental to patients with pulmonary hypertension because the filling times are reduced and they become actually very much hypotensive with, with uh, tachyarrhythmias. So when I'm limited in that capacity, I do uh, test with milrinone. Um, and uh, again, um, though uh, early and fairly experimental, I think there are some groups that will uh, published data on the use of inhaled milrinone, and again, that, that the utility of that agent then would be useful in the setting of a patient who has a very low blood pressure and won't tolerate any vasodilators in nature. And, and when you mentioned, you said the long-term negative side effects, you're referring to the systemic hypotension or... 
Uh, that's correct. I'm, I'm okay. uh, referring to the systemic hypotension that uh, that may last uh, anywhere between uh, two to uh, four hours, um, and um, certainly in a case where you are very much um, at the same time worried about um, filling pressures and the detrimental effect of hypotension in a failing right ventricle, uh, you want to be very careful about its use. Now, what about any role of these continuous infusions of prostaglandins that I know patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension can be on. Is that, should that be coming up at all in the critical care setting? I think it's very important to recognize that um, they do play a role in patients, especially with the patients who have pulmonary uh, arterial hypertension as they have already been demonstrated to be efficacious. The uh, the difficulty with their use is, uh, one, uh, the uh, familiarity that the physician has and the house staff and or nurses have with the compounds. For example, Flolan needs to be iced, uh, every, and the ice needs to be changed every 12 hours. And it's a fairly short-acting uh, uh, prostacyclin. Uh, uh, triprostanol, which is remodulin, is a longer-acting prostacyclin. It has effects lasting anywhere between one and a half to three hours of time. So if you happen to walk into a case where you use um, triprostanol um, incorrectly, per se, uh, then you may have, again, hypotension or detrimental effects of prostacyclin in that nature um, that you may not want to deal with. So that's one uh, issue. The second issue is the generalizability of uh, prostacyclin glandins to all forms of pulmonary uh, hypertension. And uh, really, um, I am aware of patients who, uh, or physicians who try to use it in patients with ARDS and even nebulize it in patients with ARDS, and the utility of that is, is limited. And that's one of the things that we really set out to do with this article is to really raise the level of understanding and education regarding when it's appropriate to use these compounds and when it's not. Um, so in a one-line I would say patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension who have hemodynamic studies done and, and have a high PVR and don't have really interstitial lung disease or per se pulmonary venous hypertension are appropriate to be um, tested with these compounds. Though uh, one may take the moment and become familiar with the compound or to contact regional tertiary care centers such as ours or uh, universities across the U.S. who are familiar with the utility of those compounds and really get advice from those physicians. And then, um, sorry, inhaled nitric oxide. So, uh, again, uh, most people are aware of the, there seems to be continued interest in using it in bad ARDS because we really don't have a lot else to offer other than low tidal volume ventilation. And yet in your article, you talked about it in conjunction with uh, inotropes and vasopressors to improve uh, 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 cardiac output, and do you want to comment on that in terms of wh where you feel its role should be in a patient who doesn't have ARDS but may have evidence of pulmonary hypertension in the ICU? Yeah, I think yeah, I think actually it's a, it's a great tool in in the capacity to treat patients with pulmonary hypertension in general. And nitric oxide, um, as you know, is is very quick acting and uh, and very short acting compound, and um, uh, we use it in several different perspectives. Um, a, um, you can use it in the cardiac cath lab and test the patient whether they respond favorably to it or not. And if they don't respond favorably to it, uh, really uh, 
typically those effects are very limited and very short-acting. One example of that is um, whether it's appropriate to treat someone with pulmonary vasodilators, you give them inhaled nitric oxide, and if there's any signs of pulmonary edema or worsening hypoxemia, that's the patient where you probably won't use other vasodilators as well. Now, in the therapeutic realm, as you've mentioned, the combination of inhaled nitric oxide um, along with the dobutamine, as we've mentioned in the article, along with sildenafil um, and its utility there um, um, has been proven in pulmonary vascular disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension, and I think remains, as you've pointed out, um, a topic of discussion in the realm of interstitial lung diseases or ARDS. Um, in my experience, uh, the utility of inhaled nitric oxide in anything beyond pulmonary vascular disease, pulmonary arterial hypertension, it still remains to be limited, although it could be a supporting agent for a very brief period of time in uh, diseases such as ARDS. Uh, aside from that, um, in a perfect world, it would be great to have one person having pulmonary arterial hypertension and another one just having pulmonary venous hypertension where you wouldn't use these agents. But there are a group of patients who have a mixed combination. Uh, as I would point out, as someone with severe pulmonary hypertension may also have a uh, failing left ventricle. Uh, at the very, very end of their disease process. So inhaled nitric oxide may be a compound there that would be useful in telling the physician uh, how is the response to pulmonary vasodilators in a patient with this setting. So that's the way I, I look at inhaled nitric oxide. Great. Well, Dr. Zamanian, I, uh, I, I, you know, you've devoted your career to this, and it's a fantastic article, and, and I think it's really great. I strongly recommend all of our listeners to go out and take a look at this, and uh, you know, your, your email is, is part of the article there in case they need to contact you with questions. We've been speaking today with Dr. Roham T. Zamanian. Uh, he is currently an assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University, and he is on faculty at the Vera Moulton Wall Center for Pulmonary Vascular Disease at Stanford University, and he's taken a little time out of his schedule to discuss with the members of SCCM how to think about and how to treat pulmonary hypertension in the intensive care unit. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dr. Savo. This concludes our podcast for Friday, September 28, 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. A new email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Join your colleagues February 2nd through the 6th, 2008 in Honolulu, Hawaii, USA for SCCM's 37th Critical Care Congress. Bring the entire family for this special congress, which will combine learning with ample leisure and tour opportunities, making the 2008 Congress one you will not soon forget. You won't want to miss such highlights as the modified schedule, pre-Congress courses, Hopper Pass, casual dress code, 
the post-Congress event on Kauai, and more. The Society's 2008 Congress is not just a meeting, it's an experience. For details or to register, visit www.sccm.org.